You're listening to the Sound Girls Podcast with Tori and Katie. Today's episode features an interview with supervising sound editor turned director Vicki Sampson. After a successful and award-winning 40-year career as a supervising sound editor with over 200 feature film credits, Vicki Sampson retired six years ago to devote her time and energy to directing. She continues to work on sound projects for developing filmmakers as her time permits. She has directed seven award-winning short films, over 15 commercials and PSAs. She has an Emmy, four Golden Reel Awards, and has worked on Oscar-winning films for sound. She was one of 12 women out of 600 selected to the Directing Workshop for Women from AFI. She has also created and teaches post-production and filmmaking classes to students at USC, AFI, UCLA, Cal State LA, Video Symphony, Ball State University, and guest lectures to LA Post-Production Group and LA Final Cut Pro Users Group. She is a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences since 1988 in the Sound Branch, the Motion Picture Editors Guild since 1973, Motion Picture Sound Editors, and is an emeritus board member of the Alliance of Women Directors, where she was also one of its original members in 1997. Welcome, Vicki. Welcome. Thank you, guys, gals. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you. What a pleasure. Yes. Thank you. Well, yeah, just, I'm just telling uh, my partner to be quiet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can cut that out. All right. Thank you, editors. Yes. Thank you, editors. You make us look good and sound good. I mean, I actually know of film editors who, when an, a- an actor wins an Oscar, and the whole performance was created in the cutting room. All the magic behind the mirrors, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. That must be amazing what you see uh, from the production side of things, what the film really is at the beginning and then what it transforms into at the end. Well, that's the magic of filmmaking. You know, it's always like that. You don't, you know, a script is not a film, you know? A film is not a script. And um, lots of things happen in between a script and an actual film. And, and I love that magic personally, because I've seen films literally transform from a germ to a flower. And um, it's cool. I love that process. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable to be a witness. Well, some people ask me, I was just at the Sedona International Film Festival, which is the best film festival of the world for filmmakers. And I, I'm serious. This is my third time there. I, I was there in, in 2000 with my first film on my own. Uh, click three times and it premiered there and people from the town came out in droves to see the movies and people love the movies is like how can we see more shorts okay remember it's 2000 there wasn't streaming stuff and then I got in with my other film reflections last year and I was so pleased to see that after 20 years it was still the same kind of festival now it's a nine-day festival wow the people in the town you know are very supportive and they're like are all the festivals like this? And I went, no. Not at all. (laughs) Sometimes it's just me and the other filmmakers showing our films to each other, which is really disappointing. And of course, after the year we've had, which has been all virtual screenings, it sucked as as a filmmaker because we make our films to see how they affect an audience. And it was so great uh, to go back with uh, my film, You Drive Me Crazy, and um, hear people laughing and 
tittering and gasping and groaning, you know, again, it was just the, the greatest feeling. Oh, you just made me really miss theaters because it's so special. Like when when movies can do that and get everyone audibly gasping together, like everyone laughing together and all that. Yeah, you don't get that anymore. I totally miss that. Yeah, of course. In theater, the actor is getting all that feedback all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and making the transition from sound editing to film directing. um, People ask me, like, how can you watch a movie anymore? Like, aren't you just looking at it technically? I said, no, I want to get lost in the movie, just like an audience member. Mm -hmm. And that's my first impression because you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Right. So it's like to watch it as the filmmaker intended. And I don't think, oh, okay, how much ADRs are going to be? And, um, oh, we, we have to do that scene over. And, you know, I don't want to do that. I just want to see the story and get the impact of the story. And then I can go back in and do all the little fine tuning of, of things to make it right. Because I learned from my mom, who was uh, Kay Rose, mm-hmm. the first woman sound editor to win an Oscar wow. for the movie The River. I learned from her uh, because people think of sound editing as, as a technical skill, and it's really just another way to tell the story. You're telling the story with sound. And, you know, we didn't have schools that taught sound editing. You were an apprentice for years, and you, you, know, you were by the editor's side, and you learned what they taught you by doing. And now I think sometimes people come out of film schools and they're like, okay, I'm an editor now. I know how to use Pro Tools and I can do this. And it's like, you know, any, any monkey can learn to hit buttons to make things happen. But it's the techniques are the same, whether you're on film, on a moviola, or you're on digital. Mm. It's how you hear things, what you're adding to the story, because you're adding to the story. I mean, I can use the same thunderclap to be a, a comedic effect or to be a scary effect. And it's the same thunder. It's the context of what is around it and how you're presenting it. Right. And of course, what the music's doing too. That's a big part of it. Yeah, for sure. Her thing was to make the sound accessible to the audience by taking out all the production noise that's within a set recording and to add the atmosphere, like background stereo, because you always, you want to record everything singularly and then you can add to it. Right. You can't always take things away. If you're shooting a Western and an airplane goes overhead, you have to replace it because it's not the right sound for that movie. Yeah, you're definitely throwing off the Western vibe with that airplane. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my first question because obviously you come from this filmmaking family and your mom is an icon. Um, what was it like growing up in that household Well, to give you a funny example, um, my mom was best friends with Verna Fields, who was the picture editor for Jaws and later became vice president of post-production at Universal. So we would go to her house and swim in her pool. And she built her little pool house behind the pool was editing rooms because she had two boys and her husband died and she had to support them and she didn't want to be away. So She was like the first one to do at-home editing, which I think is pretty cool. So I would swim in her pool, and, you know, we we spent a lot of time there. I think I was an apprentice on my first movie there. But one day um, Spielberg came over, and he has two Springer Spaniels Well, he had then. And he's like, Vicky, you got to get out of the pool because we got to shoot an insert for Jaws. So they brought in, like, Bruce the Shark's head, you know, and and did all this, like, wow, I got to get out of the pool? You know, that was... (laughs) (laughs) For Jaws, come on. That's (laughs) amazing. (laughs) So, you know, my childhood was like 
I loved being with my mom and I would go to the cutting room with her and stack film cores. You probably don't even know what those are. No, They're little orange, you know, things that the the film would wind on. And uh, I used to stack those up and pull the film out to make like little towers of things. And my dad was in the director's guild and we used to, he used to take me to the director's guild Christmas party and, Mm. you know, things like that. So it was, it was odd, but I really got into the business because my mom worked on the Rifleman in the Big Valley when I was little, the TV shows. And I would never see her because, you know, post-production is brutal for families. I tell my students that all the time. If you want to have a life, if you want to be able to plan vacations, don't go into post-sound because it's brutal. It really is. Um, I have two daughters and they're, they're grown now, but People used to ask them when they were little, like, do you want to be a sound editor like your mom and your grandma? Like, no, we want to be able to see our children grow up. You know? Oh, man. That's like, thanks, kids. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah. So it was a, a, a strange but fun childhood. I got into the business because I, I miss my mom and I wanted to be with her. And I, I always wanted to write and direct stories. And, and I love the movies. I revered them like she did. You know, we used to go to the museum and watch all the old movies like Catherine Hepburn and Bing Crosby, um, Gene Kelly and Ginger Rogers films. They would have series. And we just went there and just reveled in the, and my mom always just loved movies from the time she was a little girl too. I think some escapism happens there, (laughs) But, but you know, so it was a way to be with her and to learn the craft and, Oddly enough, she did not believe in nepotism. She said, if you want to do this, you find a way to do it. And um, ironically or synchronicity-wise, the film Cinderella Liberty, which was a 1973 film directed by Mark Rydell, who's one of my favorite, favorite, favorite directors. Mark Rydell would call my mom before he even cast the film to find out if she was available to do post-sound, like six months down the road. That's rare. That never happens, right? Yeah. He was very loyal to his people. And, you know, filmmaking is such a collaborative art that when you find people who you work with well and you harmonize well with and collaborate well with, you have shortcuts. And those shortcuts save a lot of time in delivering your intent of whatever job you do. So he tended to work with the same people over and over. And uh, I jumped aboard in 73 on Cinderella Liberty and my mom had already done one film. He did The Fox. That was his first directing, you know, because he's an actor. And so mm. he came from an acting background. But he would know enough about everybody's job on the set to be able to guide them and to applaud them and to encourage them and be supportive. One thing I learned from Mark Rydell, which is a great, great hint. I don't know how he knew that we needed this, but instead of recording a wild track of ambience, you know, which is difficult to get a whole crew to stand still for 30 seconds. It's like an eternity. And we don't ever use it. We never use a room tone because it never matches the take exactly because things change. And, you know, nobody holds still for 30 seconds. Anyway, what he does is he says, and action. And then he does the same thing with and cut. So you have this little window of a few seconds, which now digitally we could make into room tone mm-hmm. for every single take. And it's brilliant. I mean, I asked him once, I said, how did you know to do that? And he's like, he said, well, I do it for a couple of reasons. I do it for the ambience because I know you guys need it in case you have an ADR line and or a pop or a click you have to take out and you need fill. It's called fill. Mm-hmm. And he says, I also do it because it quiets everybody down and it kind of readies them to start the take. And at the end, it tells the actors to kind of 
freeze. You know, if I say, and cut, you know, it kind of, everybody freezes. And I said, wow, that's just so brilliant. I'm going to keep using that for the rest of my life. <laughs> I learned so much about directing from him being on the ADR stage. Um, ADR is automated dialogue replacement. The only thing that's automated is the three beeps that go before the actor says his line. Beep, 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 talk. Yeah. That's the only thing that was automated. Now, everything else you have to do by hand, which was, by the way, my job on Speed, the movie. You have to decide, is it worth it to alter performance? Because performance is always the key thing. You know, everybody gets used to the sound of the words over and over. And to replace it or to improve on it, you're taking a chance. But if the noise level is too horrible to fix, then that's your option. And on speed, uh, the director, Jan DeBont, chose to loop everything because he wanted to shoot on the bus actually driving. And Keanu was very cooperative. He decided that he was going to make his voice a little more manly and authoritative because people were used to him from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He was a dude. <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> um, and you can really see the difference in the before and after. You can hear how his performance becomes much more intimate and real. And uh, you don't have to fight with your ears over the noise floor. Right. All those things I learned from my mom. And uh, I wish she were still here to see if I'm still doing it right. But um, I guess from my career, I did. I'd <laughs> so, say so, yeah. I know, yeah. but you know, it's like you grow in your life and you look back and you go, oh, wow, I, I could have done that differently or better. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, as we know. Yeah. Anyway, so we did all of Mark Rydell's films from then on. Um, so I got to work on The Rose with Bette Midler and The River for The Boys, again with Bette Midler. See, he uses the same people wow. over and he uses the same recordist over on mm -hmm. Golden Pond. And uh, we kept getting calls from the set or from the location, which was, uh, there's an actual lake. And he said, oh, there's all these motorboats and things all over the tracks. And I'm like, oh, good. Then I'll get to ADR, Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda. But he recorded it so well that I didn't get to meet them. <laughs> you didn't get to loop them? That recordist, he did too good. <laughs> I know. I would have honked my horn a lot of times driving by a set. <laughs> I mean, I did get to meet Catherine Hepburn, but that's that's another story. Mm -hmm. She was doing a play um, here called West Side Waltz, which was by the same writer of On Golden Pond, Ernest Thompson. So I'm sitting there in the audience, and, and On Golden Pond, we were all on the same uh, floor overlooking a sushi restaurant in Studio City, and the director was there. Mark Rado was there. All his offices and our cutting rooms were right there. So I could, if I found an alternate take to fix a word or a problem, I could just go down the hall and say, Mark, come here, listen to this, which was wonderful. Yeah. So anyway, one day I heard him mention about Catherine Hepburn's secretary, Phyllis. Okay. So I just kind of heard it, you know. So I'm sitting there in the play and I had my friends with me because it was a birthday. They took me out for my birthday. I was like, I'm going backstage to meet Catherine Hepper. I have to meet her. They're like, okay, well, we got to go home. It's like, you don't want to meet Catherine Hepper? What's the matter with you? <laughs> so my one friend stuck around. And after the play, I went backstage and I said to the security guard, I said, I'd like to uh, speak with Miss Hepper. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you and all these other yahoos. And I said, well, I'm supposed to ask for her secretary, Phyllis. And it was like the gates opened up and this guard said, oh, well, please wait right here. 
uh, you know, she's with the director right now getting notes. And um, it's like the director's giving Catherine Hepburn notes. Anyway, <laughs> about five minutes later, you know, I hear these footsteps, you know, boom, 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 boom. And this woman in a white start shirt, black skirt comes out. She says, hello, I'm Phyllis. May I help you? And I said, well, hi, I'm Vicki Sampson. I'm one of the sound editors on, on Golden Pond. And I just wanted to tell Miss Hepburn how wonderful it is and just, you know, meet her. And she says, well, she's with the director right now. And, and do you care to wait? It's like, I'll wait till morning if it takes. <laughs> <laughs> so about 20 minutes go by and my hands are getting like sweaty. I'm getting all nervous. My friend and I are just like waiting, waiting. Finally, I hear the doors open and I hear more footsteps. And, and then I hear her say, sound editor, sound editor, what the hell is a sound editor? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, she doesn't even know we do mm. anything for a movie or exist. Right. So wow. she comes over, shakes my hand, and she says, I don't remember seeing you on the set. And I said, well, I'm, we come later after the film's already put together. We put in the sounds of the loons and the background and the water and the boat. She said, oh, 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 I see. You know, I guess she thought I was a production sound person or something. And then after a few minutes, I, I just, you know, we kind of ran out of things. Oh, I said, I said, you and Henry just work so well together. Have you seen the film? It's just so wonderful. And she said, oh, I never watch my films. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, this one you should, because it's really quite wonderful. And uh, we're very proud to work on it. And then there was like a brief pause. And then I looked her right in the eye and I said, I feel like we have a spiritual connection. <laughs> Wow, Vicky. And she took my hand in hers and and she just looked at me and she goes, thank you. And then she was off, you know, and it was just like a wonderful moment. It's like, I'm never washing my hand again. (laughs) Okay, so go ahead. You probably have other questions because I I really I can talk for hours on this. Honestly, (laughs) I'm loving your stories. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm curious. So you worked in audio on one of the Star Wars films. Is that correct? I did. My mom was approached by George Lucas because my, my mom, again, George Lucas was friends with Verna Fields, my mom's best friend. So, you know, they kind of hung out together and talked. She said, okay, I'm doing this film called Star Wars. I want you to do the sound on it. And I, uh, and I remember we were at um, MGM, which is Sony now, and I'm thinking, Star Wars, what a dumb name for a movie. You know, like, <laughs> a war out in space. Like, who's going to do that? You know? And uh, my mom gently said, oh, George you know that science fiction isn't my thing. I mean, she turned down the sound job of Star Wars. Wow. But see, she she knew her strengths and her weaknesses. And, you know, she turned it down because she knew she wasn't the right person for the film. She could have done the dialogue editing because that was her specialty. Right. She was a, a great effects editor too. But, you know, people didn't know it because she didn't take on those kind of jobs. You know, because people think of sound effects as like, Oh, gunshots, you know, car crashes, car chases, uh, Star Wars, you know, Terminator, Fifth Element, all those kind of things like have a lot of sound effects. But some of the hardest films we've ever done are just quiet dialogue films like Ordinary People still remains one of the hardest sound jobs we've ever done. And if you look at it, you're like, what? There's like birds and wind and that's it. And this comes back to like locations, how important locations are when you're about to shoot a movie great, you have a great visual location, go there and close your eyes and just stand there and listen to it. You know, is there an airplane flight path that goes overhead every 20 minutes? Does a school let out with kids screaming and yelling at three o'clock, you know? So they chose a, an aluminum warehouse near an airport to shoot the very sensitive psychiatrist's office scenes. 
So when the sun hits it, the aluminum cracks and pops and the airplanes, you know, do what they do. So the production mixer decided to turn down the sound like 12 dB to eliminate those sounds, which of course, then we had to raise everything by 12 to 15 dB just to edit it, which of course brought up all the noise floor sounds. And it's a very quiet scene. There's no sound effects to hide behind. It's just air, right? So I remember it took me like two weeks to cut maybe a five minute scene in the off. Of course, we weren't on digital then. Right. So that it didn't, you know, disrupt your suspension of disbelief. Because my mom believed that if you could hear things in a film that didn't belong there, like non-diegetic sounds, that it subconsciously takes you out of the film. So with ordinary people, it, it was arduous to find clean fill to substitute for this terrible noise floor. So it's just funny when you look at it, you go like, well, there's no sound. What sound? So when they gave my mom the Oscar for the river, they knew that it was kind of like her last chance to get an Oscar because the sound was so unique in that film. They, Mark Rydell, because he loved sound and, and he loved my mom, you know, he sent her and another recordist to Tennessee to record all the sounds that went with the movie, the smelting plant, the cornfields, the farm equipment. So they ended up with a whole library of sounds that worked for the movie and were recorded because when you're working on location, the production mixer's working six days a week. He doesn't want to use his seventh day to go out and record sound effects that are going to be used, you know, months later. And so that's why her peers honored her with the Oscar. Wow. Okay, so so on, on Return of the Jedi, I was uh, hired to do the London ADR. The night before, I'm going to London. It was in January, right? And I'd never been to London. And I was like, what was I, 28 or something like that? And I thought, oh, I'm going to need thermal underwear because it's, you know, cold in England in January. Not like, what, we're living in caves? <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> anyway, I had my two daughters with me. They were like five and seven at the time. And I stopped at a um, sporting goods store in Hollywood. And I had the film in my car. I had all these clothes that I was taking. I had my briefcase with all the cue sheets and my passport. And I had this little flash of intuition, like, "Mm, this isn't a great neighborhood. You shouldn't, you know. And then I thought, oh, I'll just run in, run out. So run in, get the thermal underwear, which I never used, by the way, (gasps) and come out and I see the window of the car smashed and the film stolen. This is the night before I'm leaving on a jet plane (laughs) for London. And I was so upset. They took my clothes and the film, but they did not take the briefcase, which had my cue sheets. And, of course, we weren't on computers. They were just printed out probably had other copies somewhere, but it was the film, you know, and they were on reels in two big boxes. I'm sure they saw it and just threw it out. Anyway, (laughs) I had to call up Lucasfilm, uh, you know, at nine o'clock at night, the night before I was supposed to get on a plane at noon and say, hi, it's Vicky. Guess what? My car was broken into and the film was stolen. And um, they said, did it have the name of the film on it? Because it was going by a code, a code name. And I said, yeah, I, I think it did. And they were just black and white dupes. I mean, nobody would know what to do with them, I guess. So they sent detectives down from San Francisco to search through all the trash bins in Hollywood to look for this film. Meanwhile, they had to call an assistant in overnight to deconform the film back to the version I cued it to and then meet me at the airport with the film. Like, here you go. Get on the plane. Wow. Yeah. And they were like two big box, you know, because 35 millimeter reels are about this big. You know, they're heavy. They're about probably two pounds each. And there's like 10, 
you know, picture and track. So anyway, when I get there, they took me right away to Abbey Road Studios where Johnny Williams was conducting the orchestra for the movie. Mm-hmm. Wow. And amazing. George Lucas was sitting in the corner with big, you know, headphones on, like noise canceling headphones, sitting next to one of the speakers. And uh, of course, I knew that he knew what happened. And so I kind of mouth, you know, I'm sorry, you know, and, and he's like, he shrugs, he goes, eh, you know, whatever. And that's the only Star Wars film I ever worked on. You think that has anything to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> but I did get to loop Sir Alec Guinness before he was a sir. Mm. And it was in this funky little um, studio. And it was a cow bar, an old cow bar with the round archways. And they had converted it to an ADR studio. And uh, Alec Guinness had never done uh, with beeps before. They always had like a streamer method. And there were other ways to do it, looping them. So I taught him how to do that. One of the most fun things on that was I got to instruct them as to how important uh, recording breaths are. Because mm-hmm. there was a shot of a stormtrooper, a medium shot, and, you know, his face is pretty full frame. And, and when people breathe, you know, your shoulders usually go up. And the way the ADR system worked back then was the beeps would get recorded on the track because they were out loud. So it'd be beep, beep, beep. And then while the second beep is going on, the actor usually inhales, right? Because they want to say the line once the imaginary fourth beep happens. So I was um, trying to find any place in what this guy did previously to find an inhale, a clean inhale that I could steal to put in front of him. I said to the director, I said, you know what, I really would like to record a clean inhale. And he's like, why? And uh, I said, because he's on camera right up front. And I said, just humor me and trust me, you'll be happy. So I programmed for the inhale. So beep, 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 inhale. And then he didn't have to say anything after that. I just needed that inhale. So um, I did that. I come back to San Francisco, cut it in, and then I'm done with what I had to do on it. So I come back to LA and I get a call from this, the mix stage. Nobody can believe that's ADR because of that damn breath that you made us do. Yes. <laughs> wow. The breath. It's the breath. That's incredible. Yeah. That's the kind of crazy way I think. Cause I want to always suspend people's disbelief, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I want people to get lost in the movie. And, and if you notice like rhythm trumps sync, I hate saying the word Trump, but yeah. <laughs> rhythm trumps sync. So if you have something like even Foley footsteps, if they're perfectly in sync, but they're out of rhythm, that's going to be disturbing. Mm-hmm. So I would rather go on the side of rhythm versus sync. And that's true for ADR too. I mean, I'm a stickler for good ADR. If you watch Speed and watch all the bus scenes, you know, I mean, I had Sandra Bullock doing all the sniffing and crying that she does. <laughs> if she wasn't, if she didn't get off the bus, you know, you know whatever she does. <laughs> um, and I'm always reminding people to use the right projection. It takes a few takes to get the right performance, the right projection, the right level, because projection is different from level, mm-hmm. you know, for it to be believable, because that's the whole point. I don't want people going, oh, well, there's ADR. Right. It should be as seamless as if nothing you did to it. And if you notice it, then it's not good. So my motto is, if it sounds good, it is good. How it gets to sound that way as a whole is the art, right. you know? Right. Yeah. You know, we have to nitpick. I have to dig in and, yeah. you know, microscopically, and then you pull back out to a, a, a macro view of it and it works. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'm in 
in amazement right now with everything that you've shared, honestly. You're speechless. You left us speechless. <laughs> I <am> speechless. <laughs> oh, that was really good stories. Well, Vicky, like your, your sound sensibility and working beside directors and just understanding how stories come together obviously translated to your shift as a director. Um, so can you tell us a bit about, you know, moving away from sound editing after many, many years and many projects and now you're directing? Yeah, I mean, I'm still doing sound projects um, for friends. In fact, two of the other films that were at the Sedona Film Festivals were films that I did the sound on. Oh, cool. And they both won. And Yay. my film didn't this oh. year. But that's okay. <laughs> but, you know, that's the way it goes. And uh, But yeah, I'm really enjoying doing short projects, you know, not big studio things uh, and fixing. Because it's like, I know it could be better. And I want to help people to make it better. But on the other hand, I, I can't keep using my time that way either, you know. But the funny thing is on Shelby's vacation, my, my former student was the production mixer. And he's like, Vicki, you told us in class that you're supposed to say and action and he says, you haven't done that once on this film. Called <laughs> out. I know. Right. Wow. And I said, well, that's OK, because I know I can fix it. And I know there's enough pauses in the dialogue for Phil. And it's OK. But thanks for the reminder. Because some movies like Sex in the City, right? Mm. Those women never stop talking. Trying to find a, a little piece of clean fill with no dialogue was like mining for gold. So in those kind of films. But yeah, so that just shows you when I, when I put on my directing hat, I almost kind of forget about sound. Right. Almost, not quite. Hmm. You know, because you're having to make so many decisions directing. I think about the locations. I think about clothing. Like silk is your enemy. Cotton mm. is your friend. Yes. On uh, on Prince of Tides that my mom and I worked on, Barbara Streisand chose to wear a leather skirt on a leather couch. Woo. You do not want Barbara Streisand <laughs> to sound like she's farting every time she ships. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so those kind of things you have to think about on on the set, you know. And, yeah. and if you have a generator, you how to point it away from the noise floor. You deny the noise and you go for the voice. So... That's why I hire good people to get my back right. on the sound. I pay my sound people. They're like, why do you pay your back? Can't you get anybody for free? I said, I could, but I don't want them practicing on my film. Yeah. I want professionals because then it makes my job easier later on down the line. Because you get used to hearing a production track. And this brings it back to another point I was going to say before. It's like when you introduce a new sound whether it's a sound effects or an alternate take of dialogue because you found a problem in the dialogue that the director never heard anyway, but you want to fix it because of that subconscious thing. Mm -hmm. And then you present it to them. They kind of, you know, the hackles on the back of their, you know, they kind of like, oh, that doesn't sound right. So imagine you have a favorite record or an album or singer or something, and you listen to that song over and over. You know every nuance, where it changes pitch, key, whatever. Then you go hear them live in concert. And you're like, oh, well, they're doing it wrong. You know, that's not the way it goes, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Relatable. So that's kind of how directors are with, you know, here and film editors hearing things over and over. So even for me, I, I have to, you know, really be open to hearing a different take, a different ambience. Um, on Evan Almighty, we had to give the picture editor uh, a lot of the sounds of the animals for him to cut in because they were all CGI'd mostly. And because um, Steve Carell didn't, didn't like animals so much. So they had to do a lot of CGI of the animals. And those sounds kind of became like production. They become like the Bible. You know, you have to go with them. And so 
you know, if you put in temp music or temp sound effects and the director hears that, and they get used to hearing that. It's really hard to get them to change their minds about it. I mean, yeah. here on Ordinary People, they hired Marvin Hamlish, the famous Marvin Hamlish, to do the music. And mm-hmm. Robert Redford got used to hearing the Paco Bell Canon in D music. And he basically almost threw up all Marvin's score because he was so used to hearing that. that Temp love. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's kind of a dance between like, what do we give them for the temp dub, which is a temporary mix of, of the sound and music for preview purposes. Uh, and also because people have, a, even studio executives have a hard time envisioning what sounds will be there. Right. We're also used to hearing finished movies that to hear an unfinished movie is very hard. Yeah. So, you know, we tend to like, oh, there's a dog, a dog barking. Okay. Grab a dog bark, put it in. That could be like the worst dog bark in the world. But they, they love, love it. it. Yeah. yeah they thought, <laughs> Don't change that bark. So it's in. Yeah. And that goes with like music too. Like I uh, remember Elmer Bernstein, I was on a panel with him years ago, him and Ben Burt and Walter Murch. I mean, all these like big guys of sound wow. and music. And he said, don't even cut in any of my music for attempt of, I don't want to hear any music associated with your film until I get it. And I can put my own thing in it because and that's hard for me, too, as a director, when I hear music married to film image, I think, oh, it has to stay that way. Like, it can't be any better than that, you know. And then it is. Like, on uh, You Drive Me Crazy, I cut in a little piece of uh, Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure music for the kind of the car chase thing. Yeah. And when I went to my composer, I said, I kind of want it like this. And he's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so he gave me some samples of things and I said, yeah, yeah, that it's just a, a jumping off point, you know, because I don't want people to be tied to it, but I want that flavor. And music to me is very hard to talk about. It's like talking about um, pain, you know, that little pain chart in a hospital. Right. It's like, what? I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know how to answer when they say, what's your pain level? It's like, I, I don't know, you know, scrunchy, terrible pain. <laughs> Because sound is so subjective. That's the thing about it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious um, with your students, what is some of the good advice that you've shared with them as they're looking to walk essentially in your shoes? Well, um, are you talking about sound students or, or filmmaking students? Because I teach both. Both. Yeah, I'm going to say both. Okay. Um, for sound students, I, I tell them just to practice listening, like go to environments, close your eyes and, and hear what it sounds like. Are you in a cafe? What pieces of conversation are coming through to you? Is there a buzz from fluorescent lights happening? Is there, you know, just to attune, it's like you practice with your ears. You hear a whole lot of things with your ears and, um, you know, it takes practice to really discern what you're listening to. Like my mom, she never had hearing aids. She died when she was almost 81. She never had hearing aids. She, she could hear a pin drop in a snowstorm, I don't know, you know, <laughs> um, which didn't let me get away with much of anything. <laughs> I think it's because we're exercising our ears, you know. A lot of sound editors I know never went deaf. Even the ones that work on a mixing stage, uh, I mean, the, the re-recording mixers, because they're just assaulted by sound. I mean, imagine, like, if you get known for doing Pirates of the Caribbean, you're going to do all those kind of movies over and over and over, and just right. this bombardment of sound. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll mix it at, like, a lower, you know, dB. They'll just cut it in half and just mix that way and then play it back louder, because they got to protect their hearing. But I, th- I think it's um, 
number one, you protect your hearing. If you go to a, a concert, get earplugs, you know, that suppress the sound. Because if you come out and your ears are buzzing and tingling, that's hearing loss and it does not go away. It just gets worse. I'm worried about all the young people that are only editing with headphones as opposed to speakers, at least with speakers, you have some air between you. Mm. I confess I mostly edit with headphones, but I don't edit those big noisy movies either. Right. I like dialogue films and I like story driven uh, films and those usually don't have a lot of noise in them. Right. So for sound students, I just say exercise your ears. Um, I learned essentially by sitting with my mom and she would take notes as we ran the film on a moviola, which is also noisy. And you learn to cancel out certain noise too. Like when you tune into a noise, you end up canceling out the other noise. That's why I tell editors, like if you're going to put in a bird background, don't just lay in a bunch of birds, put in the birds and then put a little bird every now and then, because anything that's constant, your ear tends to disappear it. So right. it's like white noise. That's why people like mm -hmm. to fall asleep with white noise because which I can't stand to fall asleep. Oh, me neither. <laughs> me neither. Yeah, I can't do that. But, you know, so if you put a, a different thing in there, suddenly the noise floor becomes alive. Salt and pepper. Yeah. yeah. And well-placed things, you know, not because sound should never draw attention to itself unless that's the intention, you know? Right. I mean, even Ben Burt, they don't like just put in sounds because he's Ben Burt. He does it to go along with the story. So, and, and I think for, um, film students uh, and directors, especially, again, hire good production mixers who can really record well and monitor it as a director, monitor what the recording is. So I've had experiences with uh, my friends who are directors and they just hire somebody based on his reputation. And I said, did you ever listen to the track? Cause they were horrible. They were just did not very good at all. And um, when tracks are not good, then you have to resort to using ADR and, and then ADR sounds artificial unless you do it well and, you know, so on and so forth. <laughs> unless you get that breath and you sell it. Yeah. Right. I mean, even on speed when, you know, uh, they're like, oh, why do you don't have to record that, that kind of stuff? Because, you know, you don't hear it in the production track. I said, yeah, because it's not well recorded. You know, you can't <laughs> catch it. But when you suddenly when you do ADR, you need to hear breathing and crying and sniffling and, and those kind of things. So. I mean, I've had arguments with uh, directors about why are you going to loop that? You know, nobody's going to hear it anyway. It's like, well, because now it's exposed and it's separate and can, it can be balanced better than it was. Yeah. So I think for filmmakers, they should uh, just pay attention to movies that they like the sound of and contact that sound editor, especially the dialogue editor, and say, how were those that production mixer's tracks? You know, listen to the what the sound editor says about the production mixer. If they say, oh, no, we had to do a lot of ADR or, or yeah, this guy looped the, you know, I mean, he recorded the traffic outside instead of getting a good signal to noise ratio on the voice. And I'm not saying production mixing is easy. It's, it's hard because you're dealing with a lot of noise and noise cancellation and denying of, of noise, you know, and just think, weigh, weigh the consequences, you know, hire a good sound editor who, you trust and who does good work and um, let them present you be open to hearing uh, new sounds, you know, because you can come up with great happy accidents that way that work for your movie. If you get a sound editor who's passionate about the story, you kind of have to interview a sound editor like you would an actor, you know, because you want somebody who's on the same page as you 
I think why my mom worked on all Mark Rydell films was because they had this shortcut dialogue and, and, and she understood his intent with sound as he understood what she brought to the table. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I thought I would have that too. Like when she stopped working in 96, uh, Mark Rydell's film Intersection was the last film that she worked on. And I thought, oh, well, now I'll be able to take over all her relationships because she worked for Sidney Pollack and Redford and Streisand both hired her to do the sound on their films. But then the whole system kind of changed and, and sound editors didn't even meet the director hardly until they got to the dub stage or the ADR stage. It was, it was kind of sad. And yeah. I'd like the relationship part to come back into it. You know, There's no more run down the hall, get, get Mark Rydell to come in and listen to an alternate take before I chose to loop it. Ideally, if you could edit all the sound and clean it up and present that as opposed to having to program ADR and bring the actors in and maybe they only use 30% of the loops because you can't fix the dialogue production dialogue that fast. You know, that would be ideal if you could edit the dialogue, find alternate takes and loop what's necessary, you know? Right. But there's also group looping, which is fun, which is like all the people in a restaurant scene. Walla. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know how how the term walla came to be? I don't. uh, So it used to be like a bunch of sound editors. It's like, Hey, we need some, we need some walla down here, you know? So all the sound editors would come out of the rooms, go down to the stage and, and like a, imagine like a Western, you know, with, um, you know, the bar people and, uh, everybody just goes, walla, 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 walla. (laughs) 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 But then they got, you know, a little more savvy and started, um, having improv actors come and do the background of people and have real conversations. Seems like a fairly easy gig. I don't know. I don't <laughs> know if I tell you that. It's tough because um, you have to make conversations that don't detract from the story the actors are saying. Right. You know, if it sticks out or if you have an identifiable voice, that's not good either. You, and you'll see in the credits, like, um, voice casting is the credit. So there's, like, one person and all the voiceover actors. I had one film that um, the film editor recognized a voice over and over and over. She goes, is that Judy's voice? Yeah. (laughs) As an actor, you have to have a very (laughs) versatile voice. Although some voice people have, you know, you need an identifiable voice. Like if you have a a newscast or a broadcast, they have a certain type of voice. Um, Some movies, uh, the movie 15 Minutes that I did with uh, De Niro, it was set in Prague and France, Italy. So you had to have background people for all of those kind of scenes. Mm. So people who could speak French and Italian and Czech, you know, and that's challenging. So there's a people with, well, they used to be Rolodexes. I don't know what, what do they use now? I don't know. Contacts, you know, and they just find <laughs> all their Italian speaking actors and they get residuals. You know, they get paid SAG minimum for the day, whether it's an hour or eight hours. Uh, very, very specific, just like they were actors on a set. And they get residuals. Wow. Yeah. Not a bad gig. Like my, both my daughters got into a loop group and um, they don't do it anymore, but they still get residuals from like my daughter, Amy did uh, Adam's family values and ordinary people. They were trick or treaters. Wow. And you know, they don't, maybe they make a couple hundred dollars a year, but every time that film plays or gets released or something, you know, just like they were an actor on the set. So it's pretty lucrative career if you have a good voice for that. But I had to go through and take out all of Judy's identifiable voice 
things in in a movie. Judy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh gosh. Well, you have been so wonderful, and I know you're eating breakfast right now. So okay. uh, I just wanted to thank you uh, on behalf of Katie oh and me. God. It's been such good stories. Such good stories. And like you said, I have literally just been speechless. <laughs> Live sound is my thing, and just to hear every you know every wonderful memory you have and just all of the intricate details it's so obvious that this is how you were brought up and how passionate you are about that and it's that it's a family legacy for you and it just it shines through and it's it's awe-inspiring and just very humbling to be able to sit here and listen to all of the wonderful memories and all the stories and just the fact that you know you're sharing your passion with the future generations and it's um we're very blessed to be able to chat with you and listen to totally. you today <laughs> so thank you I, I realize i can't be chewing <laughs> and talking to yeah i mean any any time uh, i'm trying to think of what other hints i can give you just just as a filmmaker just be open to what all the people on your crew and cast bring to the table because everybody wants to contribute you know, it's when I work on a film, it's like my movie. It's not just the director's movie. And um, a little funny thing we could end with is I will never take a credit except one time I did as a film by Vicki Sampson. You know, I think that's such mm -hmm. an egotistical thing because mm -hmm. there's so many people. And yes, the director's the helm of it, but it's not just like my film. You know, I think it was on my two minute Harley Davidson commercial. And uh, my daughter, Amy, edited it for me, and she put a film by. <laughs> was like, I didn't want to tell her because she did such a cute job on it. I mean, a good, a good <laughs> job. And, uh, but I started working on this film a few years ago called uh, Is That a Gun in Your Pocket? And it's kind of based on the is it Aristophanes um, thing where the women in a small Texas town decide to withhold sex from their husbands unless they get rid of all their guns, right? So when I first started working on it, and um, the credits come up and it says a film by, and I went, oh, great. And it's egotistical director. And then it says everyone who worked on it. And I went, oh, that's oh, cool. That's so nice. You never see that. And I then know. it's like, of course. Well, of course it's everyone. Yeah, it is everyone. Uh, oh, okay. One more thing. Um, my mom worked on a, on a film called uh, Survivors, The Survivors. And at the, at the end they said, well, you know, we don't have room to, put all the credits of all the sound editors who worked on it. And my mom said, but these are all my friends. You know, that's not fair. And uh, she said, well, if you're, if you're not going to give them credit, then take my name off also. So you know what they did? The producers, the credit reads, K. Rose and friends. She was so pissed. <laughs> she was really, yeah. she was so livid about that. And everybody worked really hard because, you know, uh, the end of the film schedule, it's like, here's the film, here's the release date. It's like, we keep getting scrunched right at the end. So you have to hire more people to do it fast to get it done. There was a lot of us on there, but that, all they could afford was heroes and friends. Oh, what a slap in the face. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so don't be that person. Don't, don't be, be that, that person. person. Please don't. Be inclusive. And sound is, is, a, um, is such sort of a stepchild in the industry. Like, People think, again, because it's technical that it's not filmmaking and, you know, oh, I'll just leave it to whoever, you know, you do the sound over there, you know, yeah. um, and make it more collaborative. So if you don't know something, ask. I supervised the sound on Dottie Darko and the director was a new young director. 
and I was, you know, older than him. And he says, look, I, I don't know much about sound, but I'm willing to learn if you can teach me, you know, what I need to know about this process. Cause I don't know. And I thought that's classy, you know, that's a way to yeah, involve yeah. people as opposed to, well, you go do your thing and I'll see if I like it eventually, you know? So learn as a director, learn about all the different departments, you know, what does it take to be a dolly grip? Mark Rydell, he would, if a, if a dolly grip did a really sensitive move, he would tap that guy on the shoulder and say, that was great. Thank you. I mean, that guy would stay late. He would go to the mat for him. He would do anything as opposed to, you know, oh, well, do do your thing over there. I don't know what you're doing. Just, just, this is what I want. Do it. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want to be that person. You want to be a person who's open to new ideas. What do you bring to the table? Because it'll make your film better. Definitely. If it sounds good, it is good. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Our mission is to create a community for women in audio and music production, providing the tools, knowledge, and support to further their careers. Applications are now open for the Sound Girls scholarships of 2021, and we have four different scholarships available. The deadline for all scholarship applications is July 30th at 12 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. The Sound Girls board will review essays and will notify the winners via email in August. For more information on these scholarship opportunities, check out soundgirls.org slash soundgirls dash scholarships dash 2021.